in a private setting. I want you to think about that. Okay. So now I'm going to share with you actually what I wanted to talk about this morning. So I am of, I don't even know if I, do I have any color left in my face from being in Israel for a month? A little bit? Just tell me yes, please. It makes me, thank you. It makes me feel good. So uh, fresh of a month off in Israel. And uh, what appears to be a pattern now in both my and Lisa's life is every time we go to Israel, there's a COVID outbreak. So the last time we were there, which was in March of 2020, uh, that was the initial COVID outbreak and we crossed the border. And then, but a few days later, the Israeli government, along with governments throughout the world, began to enact a series of closures, uh, which led us about three and a half weeks later to exit Israel. Um, what ended up being near the last flight out of the country for a number of months to get back to Canada. This time, uh, we crossed over the border and then Omicron uh, broke out, uh, resulting in a series of closures uh, throughout the world, particularly of travel. Israel instituted almost four days from us landing in the country. They closed the borders. And that was all of a sudden, when you're in Tel Aviv, um, if you have the vantage of being in Tel Aviv, in a normal season, you could look at the sky and from 5.30 in the morning until 12 at night, every 90 seconds, there's a plane landing. You can see it, and if you don't see it, you can hear it. As soon as they close the airport, it's nothing. It's the most surreal thing in the world. The other thing, of course, is while we were enjoying um, the fruits of being able, unwittingly, because we were just the fortunate victims of timing, um, of having the good fortune of being there, is that the country was empty, more or less, of tourists. Lots of people had planned to visit Israel, certainly over Hanukkah, and uh, subsequently as well, the um, Air Canada and a number of other airlines um, have canceled all their flights to Tel Aviv up to March the 1st, but Israel still has not opened up its borders anyway. So you can't get in. So one of the nice things about it is the country is actually kind of quiet. Restaurants are not empty, but you can get into places not filled with tourists. One of the sad things about it is to walk along one of the great main thoroughfares in Tel Aviv, a Ben Yehuda street, is to see now blocks and blocks of stores that are closed. Not closed because, I don't know, the people are out for lunch or they're taking a vacation, closed as in out of business. That nearly two years now of rolling closures and minimal tourism has had an enormous impact on a number of different industries in Israel, so much so that Avigdor Lieberman, who's the Minister of Labor in the current Israeli government, Lieberman was quoted as saying, or he was overheard saying, or it was leaked out during a meeting, regarding the tourism industry, he said that if you're in the tourism industry, you should find another line of work. Now, when that became public, he recanted it. But the fact that he even made the comment, presumably in some kind of ministerial meeting, is an indication of where things are heading and how dire things are and how unpredictable the tourism industry is probably going to be, not only in Israel, but worldwide for the next two to three years. 
Um, that having been said, when the Israeli government announced these closures, uh, they enacted a number of uh, financial benefits supports, uh, including significantly the tourism industry. Now contrast that, of course, with a bewildering sight in Israel. The ongoing joke in Israel is the entire country is a building site. The national bird, they joke in Israel, is the manof, the building crane. The building cranes are everywhere. To walk through Israel or fly over Israel, to drive around Israel, is to see a country that is literally exploding in front of your face. Places that you may have walked three or four or five years ago that had small quaint homes have now been excavated and they're the site and location of new buildings. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with Tel Aviv and the, the classic kind of um, ocean-worn three or four story old stucco buildings, um, they are becoming a diminishing resource in the landscape of Tel Aviv. One by one by one by one in incredible numbers uh, they are being replaced either by very large towers or something called Pinoy Binoy, which is a contractor comes around and he says to people, you move out for two years, we're going to renovate the whole building, we're going to put two floors up on top, you're going to come back in into a brand new apartment completely renovated at no charge to you. Just agree to move out for two years. With that in mind, I don't know if you caught in the news, that uh, Tel Aviv was formerly listed as the most expensive city in the world. Did you catch that in the news? Everyone's nodding. It was huge news in Israel. They were very proud of it, by the way. <laughs> Even as they were complaining about the price of everything. And I'll tell you that uh, firsthand that I had, uh, I had spent um, a few days in Copenhagen about two and a half months ago and uh, I walked out of a coffee shop and I had calculated in my mind the cost of the coffee. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how much that coffee cost me. Um, and all I can say to you is, is that that is a distant dream to what my cup of coffee costs in Tel Aviv. The prices are astronomically high. The cost of living is astronomically high. The pressures in part are due to the costs of real estate, which are astronomic. But in short, what you see is a country that is, um, it's on steroids, the country. It's falling over itself with rocket speed in developing um, infrastructure and investment from all over the world, both from far, meaning North America, to very close Arab countries like Abu Dhabi and uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are pouring millions and millions, if not billions of dollars into the Israeli economy. And this is the net result of it is, this hyper kind of activity and development. It is a remarkable, if not difficult for some people thing uh, to witness and see. So that's just a brief overview of the things that I saw. We don't have actually, uh, we don't. Oh, we do actually, okay. So um, we're gonna read the Torah. Pardon? I'm gonna finish and then we'll read the Torah, then we'll do Musa, very good. 
So uh, the one thing that I wanted to share with you on an idea is that it's not very often as well that I am in uh, Toronto on uh, at the end of December, which always culminates matches with uh, Christmas Day. There's a long-standing, if not odd, Jewish tradition observed, particularly in the Hasidic Jewish community, of not studying Torah on Christmas Day. It's a strange, it's a strange custom. It was first mentioned in, in a rabbinic article. There's a professor who wrote a, a, he wrote a study on this. His name was Dr. Mark Shapiro. After Shabbat, if you want to read more about this, it's a very well-known piece that he wrote about 10 years ago. I uh, did some research on this matter. There's a, an odd kind of rabbinic mention in the, in the 1600s about Jews abstaining from studying Torah on Christmas. And for the record, in the Yiddish, the uh, nickname for Christmas was always Nitele. Nitele. From the Latin word Natali, which means the birthday. Nitele. So on Nitele, they would say that they didn't study Torah, which is odd because there's a mitzvah to study Torah every day of a Jew's life. It's the reason why we read the Torah three times a week publicly, so you never go more than three days without hearing words of Torah. There's only one other day in Jewish tradition that we are commanded not to study Torah, and that is on Tisha B'Av. We're not supposed to study Torah on Tisha B'Av, the great fast day of Tisha B'Av. But the custom of not studying Torah in Christmas, that's something that is very late, and uh, like I said, only a segment of the Jewish community even observed it. It was roughly Eastern European Jews, certainly of a Hasidic bent, and the question is why? Why wouldn't we study Torah? And there's lots of theological permutations to this, which I'm not gonna go into. It's a bit of a rabbit hole. But I will say that for thousands of years of Jewish life, our existence was represented by a deep, unsettling fear. And that is the fear of being a persecuted minority in the world, of feeling that your life is vicissitudinal of acknowledging and seeing that your existence is something that is subject to forces not of your own making, but of forces that are far outside of you, political, religious. And that the story of the Jews throughout the world, particularly in Europe, for thousands of years, were stories of both tremendous tranquility and success and also horrific moments, long, dark moments of pain and anguish. And so on some level, when there's a Jewish reaction to a Christian holiday, particularly one that involves ostensibly a Jew, <laughs> that being Jesus, the reaction of showing something to it with anger is on some level understandable, if not regrettable. But this morning's Torah portion that we're beginning, which is the second book of the Torah, Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, is a story about a people who find themselves in Egypt, and it is a foreshadowing and a forewarning of what it is for a people to be homeless, to be without a land, for a people to be unanchored from the world, 
for a people to realize that their existence is not entirely of their own shaping and making. The story in Shemot for us is a reminder of what happens when a people don't have a home. Rashi, the great biblical commentator who lived during the 11th century in Europe, at the very beginning, his first commentary, his first commentary on the entire Torah itself, the opening verses from the book of Genesis, when it says, Bereshit et et that in the beginning God created heaven and earth, what does Rashi say at that moment of those opening verses of the Torah? Does Rashi sit there and ponder about the majesty of creation, about the enormity of the universe, about the absolute inability for humans to grasp the nature of what creation is? He says none of that. Not a word. Rashi, the greatest biblical commentator who ever existed, and remember that Lutheranism, founded by Martin Luther, the entire Christian Protestant movement, was founded in part because Martin Luther based his reading and translation of the Bible on Rashi. That Rashi begins his commentary of the Torah by saying that because God created the world and the universe, it is proof that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews. Rashi goes on to say, and this is in the 11th century. He's living in a hovel in Worms, in France, in Germany. He says, the people of the world will come and say to the Jews, the land doesn't belong to you. You stole it. And he says, they're lying. Because God gave it to us. Because God created the entire universe. Rashi says this because not only born out of his own condition of living in a time in a world where he was stateless and homeless and suffering through the forces that Jewish history is well known to represent. But Rashi is also saying this because Rashi knows, as you do, the rest of the story. Rashi knows what happens after God creates the world. He knows what happens to the Jews. He knows the beginning of the book of Exodus that we're beginning this morning. He knows that the Jews will be subjected to hundreds of years of slavery, of torture and inhumanity. Their children will be thrown into the Nile River and killed. Rashi knows this. And in Rashi's estimation, it seems to me, it's because they didn't have their home. A Holocaust writer by the name of John Amory wrote a book called At the Mind's Limits. And in one of the chapters, he asked the question, how much home does a person need? And he answers by saying, as much as you can get. We are a fortunate, fortunate generation. We are blessed with a safe place in Canada. Our homes are here. But we can also look eastward and realize that we are not truly homeless in a national sense as well. Shabbat Shalom.